Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoom. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. All in the framework of the amount of time it takes for the average person to run a 5K. That's 36 minutes and 38 seconds, give or take a mile. We often go long, so get ready. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, I hope you're having a great day. I am having a really good morning. Um, and before I get into today's guest and how awesome Alan, Alan Lim from Scratch Labs is, I have to tell you about a couple of things that have happened recently that are giving me a little perspective and reminding me of the message that sometimes we need to slow down a little bit and stop rushing around because I fill my life to the brim and I am constantly rushing. And what happens is that A, you start to miss things and B, sometimes you hurt yourself. <laughs> so a couple things. Um, I got a text message from an old friend. Her name is Jen. I used to swim against her in high school. She's from Libertyville, or at least that's what I th who I think she swam for. I, I swam for Downers Grove. But anyway, um, she was a great swimmer. We were the same age. We went on to great colleges and then, you know, moved on in our lives and had careers. And we connected once, like 10 years ago. And she texted me and was like, hey, Nicole, I'm in town. And it was like 7 p.m. And she's like, hey, do you, by chance, can you come and see me tonight? Well, I get the text kind of late and I said, well, it's kind of too late tonight. And she said, well, actually my shuttle leaves at 745 in the morning. Could you come out at 645 and <laughs> do a little hike with me? Of course, she's rushing herself to the edge, but I was just sitting there going, yeah, I didn't plan to do that, but you know what? I'm going to because there's a special connection with this person and I never get to see her. And when does that stuff just fall in your lap? And it kind of reminded me of um, what a previous guest once said, and that was Sue Jakes. You'll have to listen to hers, The Life Lessons from a Death Investigator. She's Her whole message was about pause, take a breath, look around, appreciate, enjoy, and then move. So I did it. I got up. I met Jen. We went out for this great hike in the snow. It was amazing. And uh, we really had a great time reconnecting and found out and realized, you know, she's been listening to the podcast. And even though I don't see her all the time, she feels connected just from this. And it's, it's very cool when you come to your mid 40s and you're like, wow, 30 years ago, we swam against each other. We were very different people, but we've lived very similar paths in so many ways. So that's one thing. Okay. So that's cool. And that's a message to you that when those people from out of the blue contact you, take a moment and go see them. And it doesn't have to be an entire day. It can be 30 minutes walking in the snow. The other cool and crazy thing that happened is that I broke my thumb yesterday. <laughs> yeah, I was rushing. 
I was rushing from a meeting to pick up my kid so I could get her in time so the people who were watching her for me, my great friends, who I will have on the show someday because uh, Jillian started her own company that is incredibly cool, they're watching her and they needed to go to a circus at the school. So I'm running around and as I pull up to their driveway, cars barely in park, I jump out of the car, I go to slam my door and I, I don't even know how I did it, but I slammed my thumb in the door. Yeah. I didn't hurt myself from overuse injuries or <laughs> falling on my bike or doing anything that's kind of impressive. No, I slammed my own thumb in my door. Who does that? A person who is rushing around and not paying attention and not breathing and who is just scrambling through life in those moments when I need to sometimes pause, take a breath, lift my head, and look around. So everyone, a couple little messages for you this morning just to make this little episode even longer because as you will hear, I have the coolest guest today, Alan Lim. He's the founder of Scratch Labs, and he's done so much more than that in his life. He was an elite cyclist through high school. We actually get into his uh, his early past in the episode, which I think you'll find really interesting. And then after his cycling career kind of didn't he decided not to pursue a cycling career. Let's just say that. But he pursued a different area of the cycling world, which was helping athletes with their nutrition and their physiology and their aerodynamics and all this cool stuff. And he's had the ability to work with the best cyclists in the world at various points in his career. And in the past few years, in 2012 to be exact, he officially launched his own nutrition company. And it's all about real food. His whole thing is that, yeah, we make these great hydration drinks and some great energy replacement products, but if you have time, eat real food instead. It's kind of funny. It's almost the opposite of what a capitalist would do, which is just to push their products all the time. But he believes by educating people, by giving them the tools, he's created a couple of three incredible cookbooks, which you're going to hear about. And I encourage you to go out and buy because they're really interesting, have great, great recipes. Um, But he's also got an incredible line of products. But to add to that, this episode is a little bit about the products he makes, But really, I had so much fun talking to this guy that we went over an hour. This is the longest episode I've ever done. And um, he's just someone that has so many nuggets throughout that I almost encourage you to bring a notebook or however you want to track all these nuggets, try to do it during the episode or go back and listen to it multiple times because he's a guy that you'll want to hang out with in your life. And by the end you will be sitting there going, when can I get to Boulder? When can I hand over a hundred bucks and do that salt test we talk about? When can I get out there and just experience the incredible energy? Well, right now you can experience it while you're working out or whatever you're doing, commuting or whatnot. And uh, you know what? I'm going to stop talking. It's time. Let's just bring him on. All right. You are ready. I'm ready. I'm here with Alan Lim. Alan, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. (laughs) Uh, This is really cool. I love how we're just hunkered down in your 
Is this a conference room? This is our little mini office. We have two meeting rooms here at Scratch. We have a big, what we call our ping pong room, which is like a huge living room with a bunch of couches, a ping pong, big TV where we do presentations. And this is our little tiny, smaller war room. Well, it's really cool because there's two massive whiteboards and I'm seeing some interesting, <laughs> hungry, thirsty, Somebody who's who's <laughs> writing I can't read and then Sweating. just and then somebody just wrote hi guys you are cool yeah we have a lot of love here I do love it uh, it's so it's so great <laughs> and then behind you you can take a oh, look at that oh there's wow some, there's some science on the board yeah that's actually showing the uh, physiology science? of a sweat gland wow. and you're looking at uh, how basically plasma or saline goes across the sweat gland but much of that sodium is actually reabsorbed back into the body. So that you start out with maybe, you know, a blood salinity of 3,500 milligrams of sodium in a liter. You come out on the other side with about 1,000. Okay, you lost me at yeah. salt salinity. Salt is sweaty. <laughs> sweaty is salt. Sweat is salty. That's it, what I'm talking about. In case you guys haven't noticed, you're going to get some education today. And this is so cool. So, Alan, you're, you're just, you're kind of just a leader in this sort of new frontier, right? I don't know. I like riding bikes, and that seems like a pretty old frontier to me. Well, that that's part of and it. And I like eating, and that seems like a pretty old frontier as well. So, Well, okay, so these are true. These are things both – everybody doesn't have to do both things. They do have to eat, right? We do have to eat, and we do actually have to be physically active as human beings. That's so true. So that's a big part of my belief system um, is physical activity and just great wholesome food and sharing food with your friends and your family and creating community around food. Okay, then I have to start with what did you eat for breakfast today? Uh, you're looking at it. I'm drinking this cup of tea. Oh, I've had really? a really busy morning. Yeah. What I time do you wake it. up? Uh, this morning I woke up at a nice prompt 8.30, but I didn't get to bed until about 2 a.m. Oh, so is that normal for you? Like late to bed, late to rise? I don't know. I'm, I'm on what uh, our CEO, Ian McGregor here at Scratch Labs calls uh, maker's hours. I'm not on banker's hours. Uh, my mind is, you know, always going. I'm always thinking of new ideas, and sometimes it just messes me up because if it's 1 o'clock in the morning and I'm still working on something, I'll work on it until I get done, and it doesn't jive with the rest of the world, you know. I mean, some days I'm here at 7 in the morning. Some days I'm not up until 10 you know, a.m. Some nights I'm in bed at 8. Some nights I'm, like last night, I'm not in bed until 2 a.m. Uh, so I'm fortunate that, I have this company that I can kind of have the maker's hours. Um, I work a ton, uh, but I don't work on a fixed schedule. Um, so here's which is the deal. Pretty hard sometimes. Like a lot of people listening, maybe women with kids and, you know, busy lives, getting the kids that we eat, they don't have that sort of flexibility yeah. to stay up late, get up when they want, but they can all relate to having a baby. And I feel That's like right. you're talking about that scratch is your baby it is it's it is it's it's uh we think of scratch as being its own entity um having its own life and we're really here just to facilitate that as much as we have kind of hopes and dreams for this little child that we we birthed uh we know that it has its own identity and it has its own kind of life and that you know, um, we certainly don't want to get in the way of that. Uh, we certainly want to do our best. But um, there's always this acknowledgement that this company is going to be who this company is. Well, and, and that's true of all kids. I mean, yeah. I named my kid Wilder. Yeah. She's a wild child. She And she tells me daily, 
you're not in charge of me. I'm in charge of me. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. this is like a big lesson. You know, I think we should dig into how, why, like how you got here in your life. You know, I did, sure. I've done a little private investigation. You know, yeah. I've been that creepy, like cyber stalker of yeah. you to, uh, and I've read some really cool articles. And of course, I've known about you for years and yeah. years from when we were back racing. But um, I think everyone would benefit from understanding like your background. Yeah, what the backstory is. Well, yeah. the backstory is, is that I'm Chinese. That's where all my parts are from. Uh, my family's from a <laughs> part of China called Fujian, which but is- not manufactured in the United States. No, and, and yeah, I was actually manufactured in the Philippines. Oh, really? Yeah, so parts from China manufactured in the Philippines. Uh, but I was programmed here in the United States. Got it. Oh, um, I love this. Yeah, my, my parents, you know, on both sides uh, of my family, they, they fled China. My mom's family, uh, when the Japanese invaded during World War II, um, my father's family during the communist revolution. My dad got out after the cultural revolution. They all ended up in the Philippines. And then the Philippines, you know, uh, started experiencing a lot of chaos. The Marcos regime came in. He declared martial law uh, the day that my dad arrived in America. Wow. Um, so let's go back even further because I read an article that your dad was the heir to a cigarette making factory. Yeah. Sort of my, a my, opposite world than you right. live in now. That's right. My, my grandfather owned one of the largest cigarette factories in China uh, before the communists took it over. And They can um, just come in and take it over? They can just come in and take it over, right? You know, wow. my, my, my grandfather was a capitalist, and he was living in this really kind of amazing time, I think, for, for him. Um, but a lot of the country was suffering in China, and there was a lot of uh, polarity in terms of wealth in China. Um, my grandfather was extremely wealthy. You know, he was wealthy enough to import uh, a Triumph motorcycle in Shanghai for my father on his 16th birthday, right? Wow. Um, and it was just this kind of opulent wealth, right? You know, he had his own fuel depot and, you know, he was just a mogul. But but that's what existed at that time in China. There were there were there were moguls and there were there was, you know, the peasant. Um, and I think that's what spurned the or spawned the communist revolution. But you see that in America today. You see a, a huge discrepancy in wealth and class and it freaking terrifies me what the communists did is they ultimately took everything away from our family and they ended up in the philippines with absolutely nothing and by the time my father got here to america his first job was bagging groceries while my mom went back to school and ended up getting her pharmacy degree um where so, did you guys uh, grow up so we grew up in la uh initially like in you know the the chinatown area then east la El Sereno, uh, it's a little neighborhood in Los Angeles. Uh, eventually, we moved up to the Burbs towards Glendale, which is just north of Los Angeles. And uh, that was when I started getting into cycling and joined the little local cycling club and the Boy Scouts and all this sort of very kind of, you know, suburban American type of stuff. Oh, I love it. So you were a Boy Scout bike riding. <laughs> That's right. You know, transplant. That's right. But, um, but, it, but, but an earlier, you know, life when we first came here, I remember like literally going to a school that was almost 100% um, Hispanic and, you know, marching in the Cinco de Mayo parade, wearing a sombrero and a poncho, getting my ass kicked, you know, at the end of the parade by a bunch of kids who were like, you're not Mexican, and just dealing with a wow. lot of that 
not just you know cultural in between us between being Asian in America, but in Los Angeles, there's so many different cultures, um, you know. And for the most part, I think you learn how to really get along with a lot of different people, and you learn to appreciate uh, the diversity. Um, and that's what I grew up in. I, I grew up in Los Angeles, which I think is one of the coolest, most diverse places in America. Oh, I'm. I know it is, and I, I have only spent very little time there, but. I do think uh, being immersed in different cultures can happen even if you live in one country. You don't That's have right. to go anywhere. That's right. You don't have to go anywhere. Um, but eventually I found cycling in L.A., and a lot of people maybe don't associate L.A. with cycling, but it's probably one of the best places in, I think, the U.S. to ride. Really? Because everything's paved. Everything is paved. That's true. Right? <laughs> and it takes so long to drive anywhere. Yeah. And so you can skirt around traffic. <laughs> and I was a you know kid learning how to ride in L.A. And so I got desynthesized to, to, to traffic at a pretty early age, you know, chasing these big RTD buses down the boulevard, uh, motor pacing and whatnot, and doing some really crazy stuff. I talked to my brother about this the other day. If our parents knew or even us thinking about what we used to do as kids on bikes back then. It's completely insane, but um, oh my gosh, uh, it's so so much risk, and I'm sure you didn't wear helmets, and there were no hands on handlebars, and you're weaving in and out of all kinds of stuff. Yeah, this was the '80s, so you know we were uh, <laughs> we were having some fun. Your version of partying. That's right. I love right. it. Well, I grew up in the '80s too, so it's, it's you know nice. the music will always bring us back there. That's right. That's right. Um, so d- you actually became a pretty good cyclist. Um, somewhat, you know, as a junior, yeah, you went to nationals, uh, met a lot of the guys who ended up, um, uh, turning pro, you know, um, yeah, I, I did the rounds and, and both my brother, myself, all my cousins, we all rode, we all raced, uh, we got really involved with the cycling community and those friendships are lifelong. Right. And ultimately, I think it was those childhood friendships that allowed me to enter the pro cycling tour because, you know, I had grown up with, you know, these riders like George Hincapie, et cetera, um, Freddie Rodriguez, who ended up becoming, you know, the pros of our generation. And so there was a level of trust when I started trying to make my way as a sports physiologist on the pro cycling tour. But see, I think this is interesting because I know a lot of guys who were at the level you were, but they continued to try to race pro. But you went the other way. And I know there's a lot of passion on both sides. You know, it's probably like a dream job merging these two worlds. But like, why did you go the other way? Because I'm lazy. (laughs) (laughs) Because I don't like waking up early in the morning and I hate racing in the rain. I hated like being cold. And maybe that's like the one thing because I don't like being cold. That was like the one thing that was like, I'm going the other way. Do you ski? I don't ski. Me either. Yeah. I'm too cold. I'm too cold. And the (laughs) snow gets in the glove. I get the the Renaud syndrome. You know, you lose your. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Um, but but there was, I think, a lot of pressure on, on myself, my brother, um, not necessarily spoken pressure, but we had this strong expectation that we had to make good on the sacrifices, the work that, um, you know, my mom and dad did to, to get us here, right? We always felt that. We always felt that, that we were part of their American dream. We understood that, um, maybe innately, intrinsically, and so we knew that we were going to go to college. We knew that we wanted to have really successful careers. Um, you know, so we, 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 we took that path. It's the typical kind of Asian-American immigrant story, right? 
Um, so I ended up going to UC Davis, um, studying exercise science there. My brother went into the military, uh, became an attack helicopter pilot. Uh, he's one of the most, you know, I think he's he's a phenomenal pilot. He's been flying uh, most recently with the Coast Guard as a rescue helicopter pilot. He was the first pilot on the Deepwater Horizon explosion, pulled all those oil riggers off. Um, Good Lord. Yeah. He's done some incredible stuff. So I mean, you've done a lot of cool stuff, but I don't know. He's he's he might have it up. On yeah, him. I think I think he does in a lot of ways, right? <laughs> he may have saved a few extra people's that's lives. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. Wow, that's incredible. So, did you ever resent your parents for that sort of subliminal pressure? No, not at all. Um, in fact, I think it was a really great gift because they were actually, you know, pretty liberal, and they they did everything possible to give us an incredible childhood. Right. Um, I don't know where that kind of intrinsic drive came from. I remember, you know, when I was like in the third grade or something, I was not doing very well in school. Um, I mean, C's and D's and just kind of barely passing, hanging out, having fun. And my mom gets called into this parent teacher conference. So I'm like, oh, crap, like like it's like it's coming down. And she goes to this conference, and I, she comes back, and you know I felt guilty because she had to take time off of work and yada 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 all this sort of stuff. And I ask her how things went, and she tells me, "Well, you know, your teacher thinks that you're really smart, but that you're kind of a screw up, and that you don't pay attention, and you're a big daydreamer, and all this other sort of stuff, and that you could be doing a lot better, and your grades aren't good." And I asked her, "Well, what did you tell the teacher?" And my mom tells me that she told the teacher that that was just fine, that I was just a kid that I was supposed to be dreaming and kind of up in the air and not really grounded yet. And that as long as I was respectful, as long as, you know, I wasn't mean to anyone, um, as long as I was able to pass and to learn and, you know, kind of do the the minimum, that everything was going to be okay. But she told me that there was going to come a time when I did have to start getting good grades, where it did matter, but it didn't really matter right now. And so my mom effectively gave me a free pass. And she told me that one day she would tell me that it was time. It was time to kind of get my act together. And I told her, okay, you know, this is like third grade. So many years later, I'm starting high school. And as I'm walking out the door, my mom yells literally like, it's time. Are you kidding? Yeah. Did you know exactly what she was I talking about? I knew exactly about? what she meant. And from that point on, oh I got straight God. A's. Right? But here's the thing is what I did have and what I kind of realized coming into high school was I wasn't burnt out like a lot of my classmates were. I was like totally fresh. It had it almost been like I was sleeping for, you know, 13 years she or so. She snapped you right out of that. Yeah. And it really didn't matter. By the time I got to high school and I was able to, to excel in high school, that's what did count in terms of going to college, et cetera. And looking back at it now, what I really did have, despite that kind of intrinsic or subconscious pressure to, to perform or to succeed, was I really did have a childhood, right? I got to play. I got to dream. I got to sit around and watch TV. I got to read magazines and books whenever. I mean, I just, yeah, you know, ride my dirt bike all over the place. It's amazing, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about how how this upbringing may affect the things you do now and is your management style reflective of I don't know this sort of ability to giving people permission to explore and dream? Absolutely. I like to think that I channel my inner mom when I 
uh, kind of you know work here in the company and it's 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 I'm definitely not the the only leader here we have a really great leadership team um, I have an incredible CEO uh, named Ian McGregor and Ian is 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 more of the like you got to get shit done you know he's <laughs> totally. more of a hard ass I'm more of the like you know uh, let's create an environment where people can take naps if they want to and come and go, you know, and that we trust them to get their job done. And if they don't get their job done, well, then they're done. But, you know, I think that trust is everything. And you have to believe that people want to succeed, right? Yeah, that's very you've true. Gotta, you've got you've to throw that expectation out there. And I think that when you do, um, people fulfill fulfill that prophecy, right? I mean, you can have kind of a, a positive self-fulfilled prophecy or you can have a negative one, right? So you might as well believe the best thing because the alternative sucks. Absolutely. I mean, you said it, trust is everything. Yeah. And that goes right. for anything in life. That's I right. mean, a lot of the people listening are trusting a coach. That's right. They're trusting their spouse or That's their right. partner. They're trusting that their kids are going to make the right decisions, but they're That's trying right. to gently guide them at That's the right. same time. They're trusting their employers. And if you can't create an environment where people feel safe That's right. to be able to do That's that. That's right. So yeah. here's the thing about that trust and that safety is that you know you've got it right when there's a lot of conflict. Right, mm. and this is the irony. But what of the kind situation. of conflict, like aggressive conflict, or that gentle tension, or no, the ability not to be passive aggressive, the okay. ability to speak your mind, the ability to be who you are and say what you mean, right? So, if you're in an environment where you trust somebody, you just say whatever you want to say. You don't uh, try to think about how to, right. you know, make it PC or how to, you know, articulate. You just start to express, and in that, maybe sometimes comes an argument or a fight, but ultimately it's a safe place so that you can be who you are and say what you mean. And that's where real communication happens. So I think that people often see harmony, um, you know, in, in, in people being passive or not saying anything. I see a lot of kind of this lack of trust, right? Like I want to come in a room and I want people yelling at each other, really being passionate about what they believe in. Totally. Right? But having not, a voice. But not feeling like they're going to be, um, I don't know, penalized. That's right. For saying it. And you That's know, this right. is actually reminding me of my marriage. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, yeah, trust and, and I, conflict. They go totally. hand in hand. And you know, you start to anticipate how the other person is going to respond to something. That's and right. if you think that they're going to have a wall up or, you know, kind of dismiss you, you don't say it. That's right. And too much time goes by without saying the things that you need to say and That's boom right. it can explode or it can go the yeah. ultimately wrong direction yeah. and so often one of the things that i have come to realize is that you have to give people a chance to surprise you that's right that's and right. and we we assume people are going to come back at us often with a negative reaction yeah but yeah. that's not always that's not a good way to live your life. No, or have, yeah, have progress exactly. And and sometimes I think that people are going to love my ideas and they don't. <laughs> so the opposite <laughs> happens. I'm just like, really? You don't think that's a good idea? What? What? Oh my god, I love it. I am actually also known as someone who always has a good idea, yeah, and I would right. say ninety percent of them don't make it anywhere. That's right. That's but, right. You know, that's your job though, is to come up with the crazy, off the wall, wacky. That's things. right. But but that's also where I think teamwork is so important and having a great team is so important you know um i i come up with so many crazy ideas every day and it can be highly distracting right you still need to execute on those ideas and if you can't execute then you really don't have anything 
Um, that's where Ian is so great, and that's where kind of accepting one's limitations and saying, hey, I need a team that can follow through. I need a team that can execute. I need a team so that we can do this together because I can't do this by myself. Right? Absolutely. And Okay, so uh, if you're listening and you've decided you're going to do your first marathon, yeah. uh, you're not doing it alone. You no. know, you're, you're going to talk to your spouse or your partner, or your family or your, your close network. You're going to let them know about it and you're going to get their support, yeah. buy-in. Yeah. You're going to have your coach. You're going to have your massage therapist. You're going to have your sports nutritionist. You're going to have your acupuncture. You know, you're going to make up whatever that team looks like for you. However, you need support, right? Yeah. And it comes in, in, in so many different uh, forms, right? Um, and all you really need is just one other person to believe in you. It's very true. And right. and going all the way back to communication and kind of the point on that is you know there's a, a, a crack when you can't tell them like the truth about how workout went That's or right. you skipped something or yeah. whatever, especially say you're journaling when yeah. you can't even tell yourself. That's right. Then there's a problem. So That's you need right. to create that environment for yourself That's so you right. can go forward. Yeah. And this is why taking naps is so awesome. Naps? Tell me about naps. Because it's this admission that, yeah, I am actually tired. Yeah, I'm actually going to lay my head down. And yeah, I'm going to close my eyes and take a break from the world. Right? That's so hard to do, especially in American culture. And that's kind of another major distinction that I see between Asian culture and American culture. You come back from lunch in Asian culture and you, you take a nap at your desk. And that's just the norm. Everybody wants to do it, right? But we pretend and we hide and we, you know, lie to ourselves and to others about the fact that we are just human and that as much as we need to work our asses off, we also need to rest. And that at least from a training scenario, I've always found that there's no such thing as overtraining, just under resting, mm, right? And I so, love that. So are naps more for a mental break or physical break? Both, yeah. both. And we're all different and every day is different and you don't really know what's gonna come. So I have always taken the, the stance that as much science or technology that we now employ in training or optimizing our lifestyle or even, you know, thinking about happiness, the fact of the matter is is you gotta listen to yourself. You know, you've got to feel mm-hmm. things out. And sometimes for whatever reason, your body just wants to, to rest. That's true. You know? Um, and when what are the signs like you look for that people could look for that they're actually just tired? Well, I think probably one of the biggest ones, especially when it comes to sleep, is if you're uh, finding yourself falling asleep very, very quickly, especially during the day. Like, so here's a good example. If you happen to be in a, in a meeting or you're a student and you're going to a lecture, and as soon as the lights dim a little bit or that lecture begins, if you find yourself falling asleep in the middle of the day, you're definitely not getting enough rest or sleep. Right, um, and I think we all kind of suffer that. Um, I think a lot of people pride themselves in saying, you know, um, as soon as my head hits the pillow, I fall asleep. Well, that's actually a sign of sleep deprivation. It usually takes people anywhere from five to fifteen minutes to fall asleep if they're if they're getting adequate sleep. Yep. Um, but what if your mind's racing, but your body's tired? You know, that happens all the time, and we're, we're, we're stuck in a world where we have so much stimulus that it is hard to turn off our brains. So what I tell at least the athletes that I work with is to not turn off your brain, but to think about something that relaxes or soothes you or that is impossible. Mm-hmm. So I'll have them literally like build a, a jet engine in their mind, right, and imagine what 
all the pieces would look like. That and would start soothe putting it. some people. That would soothe some people, right? <laughs> um, or at least it's, 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 it's drifting your mind to something that isn't important to you at all, right? Um, imagine like uh, winning a billion dollars tax-free and start spending that money in your brain. Oh, wow, right? cool. Like go on a shopping spree. Wow. Do something where you can kind of entertain yeah. your brain. Think about something that is inconsequential or doesn't matter. You don't turn off your brain, but you get it distracted from whatever's stressing you out. You start to calm down and you fall asleep. Okay, so this is really interesting because I've got a five-year-old. Yeah. And when they're born, they just sleep yeah. and wake up and eat and sleep. And then they hit a point where they go into this two-nap schedule. Okay. So this is sort of dictated by the daycares, right? Yeah. So yeah. they nap at 10 and they nap at 2 or okay. whatever. Yep. Then they go to the one nap, yeah. which is usually sort of after lunch. Then they go to no nap. Okay. And then they have to go to school, kindergarten, yeah. and there's no more napping. Yeah. And... It's really interesting because she's crabby and nights are way harder and she's yes. and so why do we force this like it I get I it I, I get it but you know and then when we're finally adults and we can choose the way to spend our lives however most people listening do not work for an awesome company like scratch or yeah. even skirt sports we don't have a nap room yeah although most of our employees have flex time so they can nap whenever they want I'll never know yeah but um but you know I I, it's really interesting the way yeah. our culture just sort of moves people through this process to right. boom. You That's have to right. go now. You're five years old and yeah. you have to go all day yeah. without a break. Yeah. We haven't had a break since we were five. Right. It's awful. Right. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, well, I don't know what the solution is because this is definitely a cultural issue. Um, but I, I do think it's important for us to be aware of. And maybe that awareness can start us on the right track true right and you know if you're an athlete or you're training for something i would think you need more sleep but maybe that's wrong absolutely absolutely uh there's a, a great researcher sherry ma out of stanford uh she's getting her md right now at uh, uc san francisco she's probably done by now but she's done some incredible work on sleep and athletic performance she's kind of a renowned expert in the field um, cool. I'm going to have her on the show. Yeah, she's she's phenomenal. Awesome. Uh, we did a lot of work together when I was with Radio Shack um, looking at uh, the sleep uh, in the athletes. And for sure, if these guys can get to bed earlier, um, their performance improves. It's, That's what it is. It's, it's a definitive thing. And I think as we get older, it's harder to sleep in. Um it's much easier to actually go to bed earlier. And mm -hmm. we probably get tired. Our first kind of big sleep push is around 8, 30, 9 o'clock. But most of us, you know, push right through that. And then we don't get the next urge until, you know, maybe an hour and a half, two hours later. And yep. so that puts us now at 10, 30, 11. And if we push through that, we don't get the next sleep urge until like maybe 12, 30, 1 o'clock. Then we're on Alan Lim time. Uh, yeah, you're on my time. And then you're just <laughs> totally hosed. Um, I will say that that, that my best days are the days where I'm getting to bed at 9, 9.30, I'm waking up at, you know, six or so, and I'm having a full day, right? And then I'm in bed uh, early. Yep. Um, those are my best days. It's awesome. And you know, to come to a point where you get to know your body so well is yeah. the key. Yeah. You know, I'm gonna switch it to food. Sure. Because now we've talked about sleep. We talked about all kinds of stuff already, but you know, sleep flows right into one of our other needs that we yeah, all have, which is right. 
food and nourishment. And I want to tell you, I don't know if you know this, but my first contact with you, like physical contact, was not with you. It was with a little five-year-old girl on a street corner. Oh, yeah. So I used to live up in North Boulder, and there's a a Highway 36 and Broadway, you know, kind of connect, and it's where all the cyclists head out of town. And I remember pulling out of my house one morning, going on a long ride, and I stopped the light, and this little girl walked up to me, and she was alone in the middle of the street corner. And there's like some homeless people that hang out <laughs> oh there. Oh my gosh, yeah, there are a bunch of homeless people And up she there just too. handed me this thing and I opened it up and it was a rice cake and yeah. it had bacon and eggs in it. Yeah. And I got two or three of them. Yeah. <laughs> I ate one right there. Yeah. And then I ate one or more on the road. And I saw there were some parents or other people standing on the corner, you know. Yeah. They were watching her. Yeah. But um, that was my first, uh, I guess, contact with yeah. you and with Scratch and with this Whole Foods philosophy. Yeah, that was that was in 2012. We launched the company in so February of 2012. Uh, never kind of thought that we were going to start a business, but when we did, we got really serious about it. Um, we're, uh, we're sales funded, so we didn't have all this money or capital to go out there and market. And so our first kind of marketing stunt was sitting on the street corner of Highway 36 and Broadway in Boulder and literally sampling our drink mix and handing out these little fresh rice cakes that I made in the morning. There are a bunch of homeless people who panhandle on that corner, but it's also a corner that all the cyclists roll by in the morning out of Boulder as they're going on their, their weekend bike rides. So I hired a bunch of the homeless guys on the corner to help and uh, those girls were my assistant's daughters who, you know, came up to, to help out as well. And <laughs> they were adorable. Yeah, it was a kind it of a all, very safe. all hands yeah. on, 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 on deck sort of thing. We did it for a couple of weekends until the cops actually shut me down. Um, Are you kidding? No. Oh, yeah. that's hilarious. They, they just saw it and they just were just like, you don't have a permit for this. What the hell are you doing? This looks nefarious. Like you're using like, child labor. <laughs> yeah, I'm like child labor, homeless people <laughs> handing out, you know, a bunch of product to, to cars and riders coming by. But um, it worked out. And one of the people who actually rode by was one of the buyers for Whole Foods uh, here in Boulder. And so that's how we got started with them yada 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 the rest is history so well, okay so let's talk about the you know you started with both food and a drink mix but i think you were making this drink mix for years beforehand that's right so um my story is that i was a sports physiologist and coach on the pro cycling tour for almost a decade um helping riders and you know prepare for grand tour events like the tour de france and one of the biggest complaints that these athletes had was that their sports nutrition made them sick um, whether it was a, a dry energy bar, whether it was a sports drink with too much sugar that was purple. Um, you know, these these athletes, as elite as they are, they're like canaries in a coal mine, right? And when something is off just a little bit, they're the first ones to drop or, you know, they're the first ones to complain. And so I had a lot of complaints around this stuff. And I began tinkering with just making them real food. Um, some of it started accidentally when we were at the, this race in Ireland called the Milk Ross, and our shipment of energy bars didn't make it. And one of the athletes uh, joked, this kid named Mike Friedman was like, well, wow, we're, in, we're in Ireland, let's just eat potatoes. And so I was like, well, that's not a bad idea. So I started boiling these potatoes in the morning in the hotel kitchen, dressing uh, the potatoes with olive oil, Parmesan cheese, salt, wrapping it in a little foil paper, and this is what the guys ate. We ended up 
uh, tying for first in that in that race, and the guys had a really positive experience eating that real wow. food. I started talking to my mom. We started talking about these old Chinese recipes based on rice. These, you know, it's called zong, which is like sticky rice with like a little pork belly in the middle. It's super savory. Um, and I started making versions of that with like bacon and eggs, et cetera, and serving that that's to the guys. That's what I had. Yeah. <laughs> and pretty soon, that's all the guys wanted to eat, these little sushi rice cakes. Um, at the same time, we started experimenting with the sports drink. We were diluting out the sports drinks, as most athletes do, because they're simply too sweet. But then you lose the electrolytes. You lose primarily the salt that you're losing in your sweat. So we started adding back sodium. Eventually, you know, this turned into me having to make all this fresh food and the sports drink in hotel rooms all over the world. And I got to tell you, it was the biggest pain in the ass ever. I hated doing it, but I cared about the performance um, of the athletes and it helped them perform. And so, you know, you, you put away the convenience for the improvement in performance. And that's maybe something that a lot of athletes don't realize is that performance at a high level is not convenient. There's nothing easy Mm-mm. about it, neither for the athletes nor for the staff, right? We're all working our asses off. And so we decided to take that extra step and to start making everything from scratch, hence the name. Um, With a slightly different spelling. Slightly different spelling. Um and it just worked better. So when we started Scratch Labs, it was this notion not of just improving the sports drink, not just having an alternative that was natural and only flavored with fruit, etc. But we came out with a series of cookbooks at the same time called the Feed Zone Cookbooks because our belief was that we were going to create a company that um, developed alternatives to sports nutrition. And while we have a lot of prepackaged foods that we sell, we still believe that the best alternative is cooking it yourself in your own kitchen. And hence the cookbooks and the education and the life skill training is a big part of our company, which I don't think is traditional for a sports nutrition company, uh, but it, it, it's, it's who we are and it's how we started. Um, you know, and kind of pulling this food full circle back to you know my own my family's own immigrant story and leaving the pro cycling tour and giving up the ego and the identity of being associated with these elite athletes um for me and you know my friends who helped start this company ian and uh, uh old college roommate named aaron foster we found ourselves in a place in our lives where we were literally starting from scratch as well and so you know the name Scratch Labs is 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 about this idea that food and drink is just better from scratch, whether you're an athlete or just trying to live a happy, healthy life. But it's also this idea that no matter where you find yourself in life, you can always start from scratch. Hence, sitting on a corner, handing out rice cakes yes. and drink mix with your friends and your family and a bunch of homeless guys. Well, and it's about kind of going back to your roots and That's right. knowing who you are and what's important. That's right. That's right. So and, cool. and that also goes back to what we were talking earlier is listening to your body. These athletes were willing to say, hey, you know what? This works better. Can you please make this instead? Right. right? Um, and, and what that all boils down to is something that I think that we have a hard time with in this society in some ways, which is hedonism, right? The mm-hmm. belief that pursuing uh, happiness or pleasure is a good thing. Um, it really kind of uh, goes against rationalism, which is this idea of logic and evidence-based problem solving. And you got to have the facts and the details. But I think the two can live together because when you think about physiology, 
the body is always trying to maintain a balanced internal environment. We call it homeostasis. And homeostasis only works because we have in physiology what we call a hedonistic response, which is if we're thirsty, we drink. If we're hungry, we eat. If we're hot, we try to cool down. If we're cold, we put a jacket on, right? If you're tired, you go to sleep. And that hedonistic response is really a survival response, right? Tells our bodies that it's worth living. And here's how you do it. So this is really cool because that's all about learning to listen to your body. And sports can really help you with that, I think. Like the first time I got really bitchy on a bike ride and came home and was on the floor and could barely move, Tim was like, you bonked. What could the signs be? I was like, oh, I got bitchy. Wait yeah. a minute, if I yeah. get bitchy, yeah. maybe I need to get some calories in. Yeah. Boom, so I start learning yeah. the signs, right? And yeah. you usually don't learn them until you go over yeah. the edge. Well, one of the best pieces of advice is about advice about coaching athletes, elite athletes, uh, comes from a mom, Lori Ventura. Uh, was married to mm-hmm. Robbie Ventura, another pro cyclist. And she has this acronym called HALT, okay? And she uses it with her kids, and I started using it with all the athletes I work with. This is It's the most important thing in a coach or a mom's toolkit. And HALT stands for hungry, angry, lonely, tired. And if your kid or an athlete is falling apart, you want to say HALT. Are you hungry? <laughs> Love it. Are you angry? Are you lonely? Or are you tired? And you know, athletes can be the biggest babies in the world. That's right. So that applies to us adult That's athletes right. as much as it does the five-year-old. And crowd. I guarantee you, it's one of those issues. Like, what are you angry Man. about? Are you hungry? You know, do you just need do you just need a hug because you're lonely? Right. I love her. Yeah. God, Lori, you're the best. <laughs> Um, going back even to the nutrition that's out there on the race course for a lot of athletes. Yeah. You know, I know back in the day when we were doing Ironman, it was Gatorade. Yeah. And it was Coca-Cola. Yeah. And then Tim and I would take insurers. Yep. And, yep. and take them on the bike to get the extra calories in. And what's really disgusting is if you don't drink them, you realize <coughs> later that they just congealed and turned into some kind of like just looked like play-doh it was disgusting yeah and we're drinking and eating that stuff and i actually recently did a funny video where i pulled out a couple of race bibs and i pulled out a couple bibs from my ironman in hawaii and they were stained and disgusting because you you know what happens when you take that stuff in no you spill it you puke it up you puke it up because you're not it's not meant to be (laughs) you know used as fuel for that kind of performance and so one thing i love about your products is that they're very clean yeah the very first promotional video you ever did was so brilliant it was just funny and fun and real and simple yeah real life and you can understand it yes totally yeah Yeah, i I think that we for a long time in the sports nutrition world made things too complicated um i mean i learned that lesson when i when i first graduated from cu i finished my phd here in exercise physiology and i thought that memorizing every biochemical pathway in the human body made me smart. But when I got on the pro cycling tour, it didn't matter if I could explain how glycogen was resynthesized to an elite athlete if they didn't own a pot to boil pasta in, if they didn't have the simple Mm. skills to cook a good meal with. And, you know, if you're on the race course and you're vomiting on yourself, common sense would tell you that that's not a good thing. But as an athlete, we somehow convince ourselves that this is part of the price that we have to pay to play. 
Um, and, and it's not. And I think that when we started kind of letting go of that and saying, what are all the alternatives and realizing that the alternatives had always been in front of us and that was real food that was cooked with love and care and was fresh and tasted good and satiated all of that hedonism in us, right? Yeah. Um, you know, once we gave in to the wild animal a little bit, you know, kind of remembered how to cook. Yes. Then things got better. There's um, but there's a part of this with athletes that, okay, it's it's a little bit of a conflict, which is self control and discipline. That's right. And I know there's a study that you have cited before, an article, and I, I read up on it again. We've all seen it, the marshmallow study. The marshmallow study, yeah, delayed gratification. Yeah. Will you just describe that again? And so, d- how does that play in? Yeah. To the hedonistic so, response and allowing yourself to be who you are in the moment. So Michel uh, was a psychologist who was studying this idea of delayed gratification. And he first thought, well, this is probably something that develops in kids by the time they're five years old so that they get this idea that, you know, they can delay gratification for more later rather than give up to like, you know, instantaneous urges. So he set up this study where he uh, placed a plate of marshmallows in front of a child or cookies or something delicious that they couldn't resist. And he would say, I've got to leave the room. You can have one right now, or you can have two when I come back. And he would literally just ditch them and film and see what they did. Um, The responses were all over the place. Some kids immediately went for that marshmallow. Other kids would do whatever it took to hold out for two marshmallows. Like what kind of behaviors? Like they would turn around and start singing or you know, distracting themselves or like they were vexed, you know, like all sorts of crazy things. I get to have two, just hold on. Yeah, I mean, some kids would cheat and lie and like have one and pretend that they didn't, right? Like it's just the behavior was all over the place. And so his initial hypothesis that this was something that all kids got and developed a certain age was kind of um, dismissed. Many, many years later, his daughter, who was one of the subjects, was talking about a student who hadn't wasn't doing so well in school, one of her friends. And he realized, wow, this is a girl who um, went for the marshmallow, went for one. And he started asking himself, is there a correlation between kind of how these kids are doing and how they behaved back when they were five? And he re-recruited them, asked to look at their SAT scores and found this really high correlation between the two. Continue to follow them. And what we would think of as these life markers of success, your grades, your income, your, you know, even your health status, your body weight, they all correlated to this behavior uh, when these kids were five. A lot of people uh, mean that to or believe that that means that by the time we're five, who we are is who we are, and you're either a person who can delay gratification or you're a person who can't. But Michel really believes the opposite. He believed that you know this was plastic, that you could change this. And if you could identify someone who didn't have that skill set, it was like boiling water and cooking pasta. You could teach these kids that skill set. And a lot of that skill set um, does come from the, the rational part of our brain. And so as much as I promote hedonism, I think it's also important that that balances with a sense of rationalism or goal setting or big picture thinking. And that big picture thinking, the way that Michel found it best manifests is through imagination, through fantasy, right? The kids who were able to lay figured out a way in their minds to imagine something else, to distract themselves, to potentially dream about that second marshmallow. And that's what helped them to delay, right? So 
So you know, impressive. It's really interesting. We're, we're complex beings and we're polar beings. And there's this amazing quote by F. Scott Fitzgerald when he says, the test of a first-rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposing ideas in one's mind and still retain the ability to function, right? You can hold this desire to eat that marshmallow, to fulfill your 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 animal needs, but you can at the same time also be a rational human being who is thinking about whether or not that's good for you, good for the world, right? Good for the goals or the purpose that you have in this life. Yeah, it's amazing. Right, And oh it can be taught. And the fact that it can be taught through our own ability to imagine, that's freaking amazing. It's huge. Yeah. I mean, that's what I want for my kid now. Yeah. I'm taking all these notes. I think so- Ben Affleck put it best in Boiler Room in 2000 when he you know, tried to inspire his young recruits to act as if. Yes, right? I love that. You and Tim would get along. He loves that movie too. You know, um, do you have a few more minutes? Mm-hmm. We're running a little late, but I yeah. have a couple more topics and this sure. has been so cool. I actually want to talk a little more about hydration. Yeah. Because I think there's a lot of myths. Um, like people always say, well, it's if you pee clear, you're hydrated. If you don't, blah, blah, blah. Like I don't know what's real. What's real? How do we know if we're hydrated on a daily basis yeah. and then through our sports activities? Yeah. Well, you can ask yourself a couple of questions. One, are you dead? Are you thirsty? <laughs> Uh, are you peeing every 10 minutes? Well, right? there is so, a bladder thing going on, especially if you've already had kids for a lot of women. Yeah. You may or may not know about that. I, 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 I don't. And, um, <laughs> we can I'm educate grateful, you on that but later. I'm, I'm open to the conversation. <laughs> uh, I think, okay, first and foremost, um, our bodies are smart and we got to trust our bodies. And if you're chronically thirsty and not doing anything about it then you're probably also dehydrated you know if you're uh if you're getting headaches during the day if you're finding yourself with a really low blood pressure if you're passing out for no reason you know if you're thirsty and you realize yeah i don't really drink that much you're probably underhydrated. i think that with respect to clear pee that probably works first thing in the morning it probably doesn't work during the rest of the day because our kidneys are uh pretty busy filtering and you know keeping us keeping keeping our internal environment healthy wait you should have clear pee when you wake up in the morning well i would say that that how clear your pee is (laughs) as an indicator for hydration okay um probably only works in the morning okay got it you know relative to whatever your pee normally looks like right and it's always going to be some hue of of yellow if you're on the darker side of you in the morning then you're probably dehydrated if you're on the lighter side of you you're probably well hydrated in fact you know in the morning if you're taking your resting morning heart rate as an indicator of your training status that's probably better correlated to your hydration status than it is to fatigue right so if you happen to have a very high resting morning heart rate and your pee is on the darker side for you normally then that's probably an indicator that you're dehydrated um but I'm a big believer in thirst as a driver for hydration. I'm a big believer in thirst as a driver for hydration because I really do believe the human body works and keeps us alive. And that up until you know recent modern times, that was really the only indicator we ever had. It's true. And guess what? Humanity has thrived and survived, right? Um, humanity has thrived and survived also because we've developed a really robust salt trade over millennia. Right, and that salt trade. If you look at it, 
has determined not only the development and the growth of human civilization, but it's also directly determined our genetics, that some people actually lose a ton of salt in their sweat, some people lose very, very little, and that genetic diversity is actually pretty massive. So how can people get tested? So a couple of points on hydration. First and foremost, listen to your thirst. And if you're peeing maybe once every hour and a half, two hours, that's probably normal. If you're peeing multiple times per hour, you're probably drinking too much or have diabetes or have other issues that need some attention that don't have to do with dehydration or hydration. Second, realize that thirst, uh, you know, is it can be can be due to a multitude of factors. You know, it could be, you know, that you see a commercial that advertises something to drink. You could have a dry mouth. It could be just dry where you are. But for the most part, the primary physiological driver for thirst is blood sodium concentration. And when your blood gets too salty, you get thirsty. And your blood gets too salty when you lose water. You either lose water through respiration, you might lose water through your kidneys, you might lose water through sweat, right? Uh, that sweat, you know, for the most part during exercise is sensible. When we're sitting around and just kind of evaporating and we're getting water loss transdermally, that's typically insensible. The insensible water loss does not come with any sodium loss. So if you're thirsty and you know you've just been sitting around drinking plain water is just fine. But during exercise, we're losing about a third of the salt that we have in our blood, maybe a thousand milligrams per liter. Since we're losing more water than salt as we're sweating, our blood sodium concentration rises. But if we drink just plain water to satiate that thirst, we don't need as much water to bring our blood sodium concentration back down because we've already lost some salt. Right. And so plain water isn't good for hydrating us, but plain water is great for maintaining sodium balance unless people drink beyond thirst. And when people put themselves on a schedule and start drinking more water than they actually feel they need, you now run the risk in athletics of something called hyponatremia, mm -hmm. where your blood sodium concentration dips. So the easy solution is to simply drink a solution that has as much salt as you lose in your sweat. Mm -hmm. And when you do so, thirst becomes a great mechanism for not only maintaining water balance, but also for maintaining sodium balance. So you asked this question. I had to kind of say all no, this because you had I'm this so question glad. about yeah. how do you measure how salty your yeah, sweat is. Yeah, because there's no customized drink out there. Well, this machine right here that, that oh, I had on the table is actually cool. a, a uh, sodium sweat analyzer. We do that here uh, at our office. Yeah. Customers can come in, give us 100 bucks, and we will uh, literally put a little sweat collector on your skin. We'll either have you exercise or use a drug called so polycarpine. Cool. I think I have a hundred bucks. We got to do this. Yeah, so, yeah. Right. We'll do this at some point. I love it. But here's the, the easier <laughs> trick you can do: is if you weigh yourself before and after exercise, and you drink ad libitum, meaning you drink according to your own thirst, mm -hmm. and you are constantly losing more than four or five percent of your body weight, and feeling like crap, and losing more water weight, being more dehydrated than your peers, the easy fix is try adding more salt to your drink or try consuming more salt during your workout. And if 
that causes you to dr- drink more because of thirst. It drives thirst and your body weight is more normal, say, meaning you're not losing more than 3 or 4% body mm-hmm. weight. Then you've just solved your problem. So an easy way to infer your sodium sweat loss is to weigh yourself before and after exercise and adjust your drink accordingly. So literally any kind of salt, you can just add extra? Well, what we tend to find, or what I have found, at least with the guys riding in the Tour de France, is they drink so much fluid that if we put all the salt in solution as sodium chloride or regular table salt, that chloride ion, effectively chlorine, okay. irritates their guts. Yeah. And so we use sodium bound to deacidified fruit acid or oh, deacidified geez. citric acid, which okay. is effectively <laughs> lime juice with the with the hydrogen removed cool. or the acid removed. Um, that's sodium citrate. Sodium citrate is okay. really, really well um, handled by the gut. It's well transported by the gut. And citrate ion can actually go into a metabolic pathway called the Krebs cycle, uh, which many people who have taken biology understand. And that's an important pathway for energy development, so it can be used as a fuel source. Uh, we use sodium citrate in our drinks because uh, it doesn't irritate the gut. Um, and it acts as a, a buffer and it can be used as a fuel source so this is so amazing are there science i know i love this but so also feel right like yeah, you have to live with both you do and that's what's so cool about you and what you're developing here is you you have both worlds yeah. you're the perfect merger of both worlds i do want to ask is there any is it has it been shown that men and women lose salt on any is there a difference between well, men and women or is it yeah, just individuals we've we've done hundreds of measurements here mm-hmm. and i can tell you that the on average women are a little less salty than men okay right so we're less salty <laughs> yeah a little less salty <laughs> however you want that, that being said frame if, that if you look at the individual difference the individual variability in in men and the individual variability in women the difference between women that average difference is far greater than the average gender difference. Yeah. So you'll find mm-hmm. a woman who is in the 400 and a woman who's up in the 1800s, right? Whereas maybe on average women come in at around 850, 900, and men come in at 900 to 1,000, right? Okay, got it. Um, that's milligrams of sodium per liter. Yep. But you yeah. know, we it- see a huge range within a gender even though the average difference between genders is, you know, women are slightly less salty. So if you, and I, I just love that phrase. Um, we're going to put that on a t-shirt. Yeah. So uh, if you live in Boulder, yeah, do they just call and make an appointment and come in and do the salt test? Yeah, usually people send an email to info at Scratch Labs. Cool. And that's Scratch Labs with a K. Oh, yeah. They set something up. But it will autocorrect you, and then it always look like you're spelling the company's name wrong. That's right. So That's right. With a K. Okay, a couple more questions. We're so far over. This is going to be That's one right. of my longest. That's I right. love it. This is so fun, though. So um, what's the coolest thing you've ever done? The coolest thing I've ever done? Mm-hmm. Holy moly. I've done a <laughs> lot of cool things. I've had a lot of really great experiences. Uh, certainly driving the caravan and the Tour de France is literally driving like driving one of the cars you know in 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 that long caravan that snakes around Uh, that's probably one of the most terrifying things that i've ever done but also one of the coolest because you are just in the middle of the biggest carnival in the world gosh it's amazing yeah and i've always loved having kind of that um you know backstage pass to to things that are, are are really special um that's pretty cool um 
I don't know, you know, like I, I definitely have had, I'm really, really lucky that I've had some really novel kind of um, life experiences. And oh, you I've had have. To see, see a lot of things, you know, on the backstage. Uh, speaking of backstage, my good friend Greg Irwin is a drummer uh, on the band called Saint Motel. Oh, no way. Uh, you know, they play that song, My Type. Da, 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 da. Oh, yeah. Oh, good. Keep going. Anyways, Keep going. <laughs> he, he brought me back. He brought me backstage on stage to, you know, watch a show. And I was like right behind him as he was drumming, just kind of sitting on a little stool oh, kind God. of away from the audience and getting to see that show from their perspective. That was freaking amazing. Thank you, Greg. Uh, you need to do the salt test on him because musicians, man, they work hard. Yeah, he, they work um, really, really hard. You know what's cool about both of those experiences you brought up is that it's all about respect. Yeah. You know, and you have this, uh, a lot of people, I think we walk around in our own little worlds and we forget there are other worlds out there and, and respecting those other worlds is really important. That's right. That's right. You know, even like um, getting to hang out with my brother and, you know, his the Coasties and seeing how they, they take care of these helicopters and talking to those guys about what they do and, you know, their missions and, you know, just... Yeah, it's huge. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. That's totally novel. You know, I was... Uh, uh, in Los Angeles, my brother was 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 flying some missions from out of there, and just being in this Coast Guard bay, I, he we had set this time frame to go get lunch. I showed up, but he was on a mission. They got called out, and I was hanging out in the hangar and just seeing those guys fly in. You know, um, man, that's a was, skill. It was just amazing. It's, that's that's cool. It's mental, physical. It's everything. Yeah, spiritual. Yeah. Okay, another question. Your favorite recipe from the Feed Zone, actually, which version? How many cookbooks do you have? Out? We have three cookbooks now. Oh, boy. Feed Zone Cookbook. We have Feed Zone Portables, which is how to make your own nice. energy bars, et cetera. And then oh, we have cool. Feed Zone Table, which is all about family-style meals and the importance of eating together and the, 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 the psychosocial physical impact of that i feel like such a jerk i don't even have one i'm gonna go on what amazon where can we buy them you can buy them at scratchlabs.com oh cool uh from our site with uh, a directly, or you can get them on yeah on amazon uh <laughs> all right i'm doing it but what's your favorite, favorite recipe yep Number oh my one. gosh you know this is gonna sound kind of funny but this is what i make a lot because i'm rushed for time and this is just such comfort food for me but it's just rice and eggs right it's just so simple like Make yourself some fri fresh rice. Love it. You know, maybe a little scramble or, you know, a couple of fried eggs, maybe, you know, some sauteed spinach. Boom. Done. A little olive oil, a little Parmesan cheese, a little bit of salt. Doesn't get any better God, than I'm that. God, I'm hungry. Right? Um, do you guys have a kitchen here? We do. We have a little makeshift kitchen here, but we okay. also have a 20-foot kitchen trailer out in the back yeah. that we do a lot of catering out of. Uh and we're going to have to have you out at some skirt sports events sometime. Yeah, we do a lot of cooking. Cool. Um, okay. What drives you to wake up every morning? Um, what drives me to wake up every morning is mm -hmm. to inspire the inspirational. Oh. Right? To help people become better. Uh, that's what, what drives me. I mean, we all want to improve ourselves. We're all looking for that extra motivation, that spark, that inspiration. And what I have found is I'm really good at inspiring those who inspire. And again, it's kind of the backstage pass. If I can be part of that, that's what really motivates me. And if that helps them to become better and that then helps other people to become better, well, that's 
you know, hopefully having a life that has a positive impact on the world, even though sometimes we think, and I think of sport as just being a trivial thing. I think of even, you know, business and trying to make money as a trivial thing. There is a higher why here, and that why is, you know, let's let's become better. And, you know, in sport and in travel, I've had a lot of miserable you know, lonely times. And I've always said in my own mind, you know, let this make me better. I think that's what life is all about. It's, it's, it's maybe a lot of suffering. It's maybe a lot of bullshit, but there's this little sliver of magic, right? That makes it all worthwhile. It's very true. And you may have just answered the last question that I ask everybody who comes on the show. So the podcast is called run this world. Yeah. So if you could give our listeners one last nugget, one piece of advice so they could run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? Oh my gosh, one piece of advice? One thing. Um, Okay, here's the one thing that I tell everybody who starts working here at Scratch. Stop using the word should. Just stop. Just get rid of that entirely in your vocabulary. Here's why. Uh, There's three mood states in the English language. There's the indicative, there's the imperative, and there's the subjunctive. Indicative is like, hey, there's a book on the table. The imperative is like, holy shit, there's a book on the table. (laughs) The subjunctive is maybe there's a book on the table. There should be a book on this table. The subjunctive (laughs) is the imaginary mood state. And we talked earlier about how powerful that is, and it is. It's the most powerful mood state in, you know, the English language. But the subjunctive mood state has a dark side, and that dark side is complaint and regret, right? Um, There's also the light side. And what often happens with the word should is it represents the negative subjunctive mood state. It's the mood state where nothing gets done. It's, hey, we should go see a movie sometime. I call bullshit, we're never gonna go see a movie, right? It's a way to just get out of an awkward conversation. Um, and so whenever I see should. But I want to go see a movie with you sometime now. Well, then let's go see a movie, right? <laughs> That's how it needs to be. It's that subtle shift yeah. in language. And so when I get an email and it says, this should be like this, my response is, what are you really trying to say that has to happen right now? Is this imperative? Is this indicative? What is it? And so removing the word should clears your intention about what you want to actually accomplish in the world. And when you try not to use the word and find yourself about to use it, which is really, really hard, ask yourself what you're really trying to say or don't say anything at all. Because what we really put out there in the world is what comes back and affects everything. And you know what? Most of us have a problem with not saying anything at all. Yeah, that's right. So get rid of the word should and you're going to be a lot more intentional about how you communicate with the world that you want to run. Alan, you are amazing. This was Thank so you. cool. Okay, we also win because we won the gold medal of longest Woo! podcast episode. I hope, they, yes. I hope people got to the show. Hey, you guys, I have to pee again already. That's yeah, twice in an hour. I do too. <laughs> I think I have a problem. All right, we're, um, we're going we're gonna to rate ourselves <laughs> on our own hydration status. Thanks so much. And you guys, you are going to see in the show notes all where you can get the cookbooks, coming into Boulder and get your salt test, get out there and buy some scratch and experiment what real hydration should taste like. And, does taste like. And I, it does. God, what is wrong with me? There you go. Don't you should. I've got Boom. a lot to learn. Boom. All right. We're going to do this again sometime. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. So awesome. Isn't Alan the best? Gosh, I had fun doing that. I hope you did too. 
You know, there's so many takeaways here. Uh, one of my favorite parts of this was the marshmallow study because I could actually tap into my inner kid and then I could imagine my kid sitting there wondering, do I wait for two marshmallows or do I go for the instant gratification? And I think most of us have both parts at play at all times in our life. This is a really interesting concept. You know, he's just such a cool dude. I really hope that you explore and investigate the things he's doing in this world and specifically what he's doing at Scratch Labs. If you ever do get the chance to come to Boulder, look them up. Go do that salt test. That thing is cool. I'm going to head over there and do it myself because I have never had my salt tested before. And you know what? In the end, we're all just trying to make our way through this little thing we called life. And anytime we can get any inspiration from anybody else, I say we use it. And that's why I do this podcast, to help open your eyes and share other people's stories and insights in the, into the world. So on that note, everybody, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout. I'll see you next week.